Well, all right, folks, as promised, we have a very good friend of this program, Robert Spencer. We've been honored and blessed and privileged to have him on before, and he's back again, and he's written another fantastic book, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. And, um, you know, uh, Robert is a, uh, a, a true warrior in this battle and was even uh, poisoned over in Iceland uh, a few years ago for being uh, so uh, vociferous in, uh, in, in, in articulating his beliefs. And, uh, and Robert, I hope that was a, a 100% complete recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, it was kind of scary there for a little while, but everything worked out okay. But it does show that the left and their jihadi allies, they are getting increasingly violent and vicious. Yes. And we have to be prepared. Yeah. And, you know, and this myth that Islam is the religion of peace and your organization, Jihad Watch, okay, you, uh, I mean, you've been on them for years. How many years have you been been on this now? I've been doing Jihad Watch for 15 years and uh, doing this work for about 20. Well, you're doing the Lord's work, and I just want to say thank you again. And, uh, thank but, you very much. You know, I mean, even we have presidents. I mean, 9-11 hits. President George Bush uh, immediately, you know, typical low-fat Republican, uh, wants to be uh, nice to everyone and wants everyone to like him, can't say a critical word. And, you know, it's Islam is religion of peace. You know, these terrorists, they, 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 they have nothing to do with Islam. I, I mean, please give, give people the reality of the birth of Islam, you know, the foundations sound nice, faith, prayer, charity, fasting, and pilgrimage. And I, I even, I actually have friends who are Muslim. As a matter of fact, I used to be a Muslim when I was a teenager, okay? I kind of got uh, roped in as a very, very young man, was blessed to get out. And Robert, I got out because one of the leaders kicked me in my mouth. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. One of yeah. the best things, what, what, you know, that was like God Himself saying, "Okay, Craig, you've learned enough. Time for you to go." <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. But and but so I'm not surprised because it's a whole culture of violence. It's a very violent culture, and uh, but now the the people that I know that are, you know, I guess what you would call kind and gentle Muslims are not religious Muslims. They're just cultural Muslims. They're just because their parents or their grandparents were Muslim and they immigrated to this country. That's just, that's their culture. A lot of them, you and I know more about Islam than most of these people. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Uh, unfortunately, there are uh, quite a few people who are violent in Islam. And even more unfortunate is just what you're saying, that they're the ones who are reading the book the Quran and following the example of Muhammad, they're the ones who can point to chapter and verse to justify what they're doing. While kind, gentle, and peaceful Muslims, they don't actually have a leg to stand on in terms of justification for not waging jihad in Islam. Yeah, right. Similar to the kind German, the kind German uh, that maybe would have uh, helped uh, helped our cause or, or helped uh, a, to hide a Jew that those kind Germans were powerless to stop the Nazis, who numerically were a minority but had all the power and were willing to yeah. use violence to enforce the power that they had. That's a very important point. And as I show in this book, the Muslims have waged jihad for 1,400 years, 
And of course, it's not all Muslims who have done so. And they've always been Muslims who've never been interested in doing that, but they've never stopped them. There's never been any kind of movement in Islam to stop jihad terrorism or violence, and there isn't today. Right, right. Now, let's go to one of the foundations. You know, these these Muslims and these scholars that point to the, uh, the like you say, they can cite chapter and verse of why they're justified. And, you know, the people that make these videos where they take 18 men out to the uh, waterfront and cut everyone's head off or they put them in cages and set them on fire and they do they do all these horrific things that there were there was a video where they uh, put them in a cage and dunk them in water okay and they cite scholars okay very very learned people cite chapter and verse and another thing that they cite is the tradition of Muhammad. Let's talk about that a little bit, the example the example of their prophet. Absolutely, Craig. That's the first chapter of this book, uh, since it is the history of jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. I do start with the uh, example of Muhammad, and it's not what a lot of people might think. Uh, most people figure, well, he started a great world religion. He must have taught peace and harmony and benevolence and magnanimity, when actually he was a warlord who led armies, he exhorted his followers to assassinate his enemies, and he rewarded them for doing so. And he, uh, uh, of course, took sex slaves. He married a child. And there is a great deal more about him that is all the more terrible because he is held up as the excellent example for Muslims. And they're constantly told that he's the greatest person who ever lived and that they should imitate him. And one of the reasons why Muslims become violent is because they start to imitate Muhammad. Yeah, yeah, and there's now a rape culture in uh, in Europe, and, and, and it's very, very acute in England and in Germany. Exactly, and that comes straight from the Quran, where which says that men, Muslim men can take infidel women, the captives of the right hand, as sex slaves. Now, people might find that hard to believe, but it's explicit in the Quran in chapter yeah. 4, verse 3. Yeah, those that, you that your right hands to, possess. Precisely, and those are specified chapter 33, verse 50, as the spoils of war. And chapter 4, verse 24 says, you can have sex with your wives and with the captives your right hands possess. So that's exactly what they are, it's sex slaves. Mm -hmm. ISIS shocked the world, horrified the world, when it took the Yazidi women as sex slaves a few years back. But they were just imitating Muhammad, who did it himself, and his followers did it as well. Yeah. Same thing in Nigeria and, uh, what was it, Boko Haram? And, Absolutely. you know, all the White House could do was send out tweets. I mean... Yeah, bring back our girls like they were going to listen. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and another thing, Robert, the um, this uh, the, uh, the, uh, speaking of media, and, you know, we have this false notion that this is a religion of peace and that, you know, there's just a few bad characters given a a noble religion, uh, an undeserved black eye. But then also the, the, the media perpetuates this myth of a migrant crisis as though these are just innocent people displaced by warfare. And when the Christians very rarely, since the United Nations is in charge of determining who gets refugee status, and you have Muslims and Christians fighting in the Middle East, then they will relocate the Muslims and leave the Christians. And yeah, the Quran right. speaks about immigration as a Islamic duty. Talk about that as an extension of this 
uh, jihadi war that they've been waging for 1,400 years. Absolutely. Uh, chapter 4, verse 100 of the Quran promises rewards from Allah to those who emigrate in the, for the sake of Allah. That is, they leave their land and go to another, not just to get a job or whatever, but for the sake of Allah, which means that they are going to bring Islam to the new land. And this is one of the rare things that Allah promises a reward for in the Quran. So many of the migrants are coming not to assimilate and adopt the, uh, the practices and the principles and the mores of Europe or the United States. They're coming in order to bring Islamic practices and principles and mores to their new lands and to Islamize them, to emigrate mm -hmm. for the sake of Allah. Yeah. You know, and in past um, migrations to the United States and even uh, a lot of the migration from south of the border, you see people, they, they are, you have a, a couple, they may have children, and we're big flap right now over separating children. Uh, and then they're going to want to bring, you know, grandma and grandpa. But with this Islamic, I call it an invasion, what you see, I mean, are I don't think the media is on our side, Robert, and they're just giving us selective images of young military-aged men. I mean, the images we see of these migrants, but and it's uh, very acute in Europe. I mean, sometimes you see them get off a boat and 20 or 30 of them are running in their dress. You would think they were Navy SEALs or something, big, bulky, strong guys. You know, am, am I missing something here? No, you're absolutely right. This is an invading force. This is not a refugee crisis. If it were a refugee crisis, you're absolutely right. Women and children would be there in among the refugees, whereas the overwhelming majority, probably over 90 percent, are young military-age men. No old men either. And no babies, no kids. It's clearly that these people are coming with something else in view. They are yes. not coming because they are refugees. You know, another thing also about this, they're not coming from countries where there's some refugee crisis. Syria is a war zone, absolutely. Iraq, sure. But when uh, you're talking about, well, the other day I saw a story, I had a story at my website, Jihad Watch, about a sex offender in the U.K. who was a Turkish refugee, they said. And I thought, Turkey? Yeah. Turkey is not at war. What's, where, what's he seeking refuge from? And mm. clearly these people are coming for quite different reasons. Yeah, to, to make war and for the booty, the women. Absolutely. And yeah. that's why you have the mass rapes, the rape gangs, the rape jihad. This is all something because of the captives of the right hand passages that we discussed. Mm -hmm. They think that they can just these infidel women are theirs for the taking and they're taking them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and uh, folks, if you're just joining us, we have Robert Spencer with us of Jihad Watch fame. And we're discussing his latest book, uh, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. And um, now. Let's let's move on up a little bit to uh, to Spain and India, and a lot of people don't realize, but India is the the largest English speaking democracy in the world. Okay, India, and mm -hmm. uh, but and so India is a place that has you know a minority of Christians uh, and, and a majority of Hindus, but a very very large percent of Muslims. And so how did they get there? And what's the, you know, I understand that the death toll of the, the Muslim attack on Hindus is in the millions. 
You know, have yes. I heard that correctly? You're absolutely right. It's been estimated at 80 million over a period of centuries. It's an astonishing story. This is one of the first books, as a matter of fact, that tells the horrifying story of the jihad against India. And most people in the West are not aware of what happened. But the Muslims invaded India the first time in the 8th century. They kept coming back for many centuries. They occupied most of India until they, their power weakened and the British colonialists took over in the 17th and 18th centuries. But in that span, from the 7th to the 17th, it was about 80 million people killed. The jihad against India was especially brutal and bloody because the Quran calls the Jews and Christians the people of the book, mm-hmm. and they are allowed to practice their religion under the Islamic State, but only in, with a second-class status. And the, uh, the Hindus were not people of the book, mm-hmm. so for them it was just convert or die. Mm-hmm. And even when there were, as it turned out, there were so many Hindus that they had to give them honorary people of the book status, but even that did not alleviate the brutality of the jihad, which was much worse than anything that we saw in Europe, even though the jihad in Europe was quite brutal and bloody as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, now, speaking of Europe, the uh, this brings my next question, 9-11 as a date, you know, nine one one, And it galls me that every year on the uh, anniversary of 9-11 that, you know, my thinking is that there would be 20 people at least in the national media that would spend uh, just a few minutes to go into the history of why September 11th. And it, I, I mean, and it galls me. I, usually I'm one of a very few. I could count them on one hand, you know, I mean, and some really, really big name people, including Fox News, very, very rarely go beyond the 9-11 date. And they don't talk about you know, the Knights of Malta. They don't talk about Jan Jablinski. They don't talk about, you know, the Ottoman Turks and how in the 1500s on September 11th they got defeated. And then 83 years later, on the exact same date, September 11th, they get defeated again. And so talk about the long memory that these people have. And, and Absolutely. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no go ahead, go ahead. The thing about it is it's, uh, it's incredible, really, that people don't discuss this because it is very plain. The historical memories in the Islamic world are very, very long. And in the United States, they're virtually non-existent. Most people in the United States today have no idea of things that happened maybe before 100 years ago. I don't know. That's maybe too, sounds harsh, but when you see those it's videos true. of college students being asked about the Civil War and things like that, and they have no idea. Mm -hmm. But in the Islamic world, it's very different. There's a very general and and widespread knowledge of history. And one date that sticks out in the Islamic history is September 11, 1683, which was the high-water mark of Islamic expansion into Europe when the Ottoman Turks were besieging Vienna. And the uh, Polish king, Jan Sobieski, came down from Poland and... uh, was able to make force the Ottomans to break the siege. So on, two, on September 11th, 2001, when the planes hit the Twin Towers, Osama bin Laden was essentially signaling, now we're picking up where we left off. Mm-hmm. On September 11th, 1683, the jihad is back on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, 
again, Benghazi was September 11th, okay? So uh, we have people that are in the State Department, people in the CIA that, I mean, you and I know this. Do we not have anyone at the switch and in the high levels of government that know that every year on September 11th, there should be a red alert all around the world? I don't think anybody knows that, no. The thing is that, remember, Barack Obama in 2011 ordered that all counter-terror training materials be scrubbed of any mention of Islam and jihad. And so now if you were to go into the FBI and want to study counterterrorism and become a counterterrorism analyst, then you would learn all about right-wing extremists, but you aren't going to learn a thing about Islam or jihad. So you won't be equipped. You won't understand the enemy. You won't know the enemy. And September 11th will mean nothing to you. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's, that's just so unfortunate. And, um, you know, now, folks, if you're just joining us, we have Robert Spencer with us. His latest book is um, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. And it's just, it's, it's, it's fascinating that, uh, what you say, it, it, it ties into things making the news now because finally, at last, uh, the former director of the uh, the CIA, Brennan, who converted, I understand, converted to Islam, uh, finally got his security yeah. clearance revoked. Okay, so now your 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 last chapter is the West loses the will to live. Okay, so. What's going on with losing the will to live? I mean, we just had the Obama administration um, do their eight years. We've only had, you know, less than two years of, of President Trump. And all of these characters from, from Obama and, and his overtures to Iran uh, taking boatloads of money, and of course money is fungible, so that money ends up funding terror. And Brennan being an, an open convert to Islam, you know, what's going on here? And in, in, in all of the noise that's, and, you know, half the country, the Democrats mostly are in an uproar because Brennan finally, finally, after all this time, got his security clearance revoked. It's really incredible. Brennan is not an office holder right now. So why should he have any security clearance? It should be routine that anybody, when they leave the government, loses their security clearance. This shouldn't even be an issue. And when you have somebody like Brennan, he never should have gotten it in the first place. Yeah, and uh, he's an open communist why. as well as an open Muslim. Now that I've been hearing it for years that he's a Muslim convert, is, is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, I don't think he's an open Muslim. I've never heard it confirmed by him, but I've heard from John Guandolo, who is an FBI, who was an FBI agent. He said it was known in the bureau at the time that he was in there, that the uh, that Brennan had converted while he served in Saudi Arabia, and that everybody knew it. Now, this has never been confirmed by Brennan, and there haven't ever been any reporters with the guts to ask him. But there's no doubt that he certainly behaves in that way. Mm-hmm. He, uh, has, he, he speaks Arabic, he's shown an extensive knowledge of Islam, but he uh, is dishonest about the meaning of jihad and the nature of jihad. Mm-hmm. And has spoken publicly many times about how wonderful and peaceful it is, and he oversaw actually the scrubbing of the counterterror training materials so that they wouldn't mention Islam or jihad. Mm-hmm. So that he's one of the reasons why that last chapter in the book is called "The West Loses the Will to Live," because here we have the people who are sworn to guard and protect us, and they are actually enabling 
our vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a ridiculous situation. But it started, of course, with Bush and that Islam is a religion of peace business. Yes. And then with Obama, it just got exponentially worse. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and it seems that the example they give is the, uh, is the 5% Muslim. And when I say 5%, and you'll know this, that the, uh, the, the percentage of Muslims in a given non-Muslim society, their behavior changes when they're at 5%, you know, they're, they're peaceful and sweet when they're at 10%, you know, you see what's happening in France at, at 10% and, you know, you go to 20%, uh, 40%, they don't even wait till they get to 50% before they start making war. I mean, am I exaggerating this? No, you're not exaggerating. The fact is that, uh, Muhammad himself followed the same pattern when he was just a preacher of religious ideas and he had a tiny following, then he preached peace and tolerance. And then, as he grew in power, when he moved, when he emigrated, and for the sake of Allah, from Mecca to Medina, and became for the first time a head of government and the head of a military, then he began to teach warfare against unbelievers. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the same pattern that we're seeing now in the West, that when the Muslims are a small minority— they preach tolerance, but as they grow in power and uh, and influence, then they begin to be more aggressive. Yeah, yeah. And tell the audience, please, Robert, what the term abrogation means for people that like to cite passages in the Quran pre pre the uh, migration, the first the first portion of the the Quran, which is not written. Um, it's the way it's written. It's not. Um, in, in order of occurrence, they, 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 uh, the scholars assembled it afterwards. Yes. And so it's, it's assembled in the order of the longest chapter to the shortest, roughly, with the exception of the first chapter. And the, uh, that means that there's not really, not really any logical order to it at all. It's not chronological, and it is not uh, thematic, nothing. Mm-hmm. But in Islamic theology... There, it, there's a principle that's based on the chap- chapter 2, verse 106 of the Quran, which says, when we abrogate or cause to be forgotten the passage, we'll give you one that's just as good or better. And so the idea is that when a passage was revealed to Muhammad later than one that came before it, if they contradict each other, the one that comes later takes precedence. And so the significance of that is that in Muhammad's career, the violent passages come later than the peaceful ones and the tolerant ones, and so therefore they're the ones that are valid for all time. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's so unfortunate that you know here we have uh, a, a former president of the United States, two of them that that don't get that. George Bush didn't get that. I think uh, you know Barack Obama's not that he wouldn't get it. He is a is a believer in this other way. So, uh, but. Thank God we have men like you out out here, Robert Spencer, uh, doing doing the Lord's work. And, uh, you know, Pamela Geller and many, many others. uh, And and, and you all, uh, you know, similar. And I I have to deal with some of the same thing, the pushback that we get uh, simply by speaking the truth. But, you know, God bless you, sir. And uh, any last words uh, on this book and, and, and maybe also let folks know how they can get a hold of you and, and how they can get a copy of this book. Well, thank you. Uh, I guess the last thing I'd say is that this is the first and only book that covers this entire topic, the entire history of jihad all around the world from the beginning to now. 
And there are a lot of foreign and domestic policy implications for this book. A lot of times, a lot of things that we have as policies today are based on fantasy and wishful thinking. And so I'm hoping this book will set things in a different direction, at least to some degree. And it's available at any self-respecting bookstore. And uh, it's at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, we have a uh, kind of a nice problem right now. Demand has been much greater than expected, so they have run out of books, but they're printing more know. and they'll be available soon. Yeah, I know, <laughs> because I normally would have gotten the book by now, but it was sent to me in PDF, so I know what you mean. And now, for, uh, the, yes. for the haters out there, Robert, tell folks where, where your source material, because I've been reading the PDF. Tell folks where your source material came from primarily. Everything I've been working from primary sources, from Muslim sources, you will see that I quote extensively from Muslim uh, eyewitnesses and historians who were there at the time. And I'm trying to take people back into the uh, time that these things happened and the mindset of the people who did them. A lot of the Muslim rulers had court historians who would write down what they did in glowing terms. And Mm -hmm. I relied extensively on those people because they think all this jihad is wonderful. And so I just say what they say. There you go. There you go. Well, all right, folks, you got it there uh, from Robert Spencer himself. And uh, you got to go out and get this book. And uh, this is the battle of uh, our era. As I've been saying for years, every four generations, you know, the civil war, the, uh, the revolutionary war, four generations later, the civil war, four generations later, world war two. And Robert right now, we're four generations after world war two. So, You're a true soldier uh, in our cause, and thank you, and God bless. Thank you, and God bless you. 